9, verses 1 through 10 to get started. God's Word says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or, or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Father, we thank you this morning that in a fallen world as finite people that you reign supreme. We go ahead and praise you, God, that though we are not in control, you are in control. That though we may know so little, you know everything. And though we are all staring death in the eye, you are the one who has already triumphed over death and the death of Jesus. So as we look in this book that wants to sober us back into reality, we just pray, God, and ask that you would bring us again to that Holy Spirit spotlight on Jesus so that we might enjoy him more in the stuff of everyday life. And we thank you for this in his name. Amen. Well, when my mom is often asked about my childhood, she, she repeats a certain sort of story that almost is surprising to me in some ways, and if my wife was in here, she would say might be surprising, is that is I was very perfectionistic as a child. And what I mean is if I went to color a picture and I got outside of the lines, I would just rip that paper out, tear it up, and throw it away. If I was going to be drawing a picture and I would mess up, I would tear it up and throw it away. And so what this equaled is a lot of frustration in my life, feeling I just couldn't get it right. And sometimes that would even reflect on how I just even viewed myself. If I can't do this right, then I'm not right. But what it also led to is not just frustration, but just quitting. So if I can't be the best at this, then I'm not going to do this. If I can't be uniquely gifted at this, then I would rather not do it at all. So as we think out loud this morning, as we often do when we get started, just wonder if any of you can relate to that in, in your life and in your story. This sort of sense of, if I can't be perfect, if I can't have control, if I can't get it just right, or if I can't do it uniquely well, then what's the point? How, 
How, do you, how has that affected your story or even your life as a disciple? Yeah, that's it. There's some quote by somebody. I can't remember. If you're not first, you're last. I think that's a big, a great theologian said that somewhere. Anyone else? Sometimes these questions aren't as good as others. good if you didn't hear Rachel like I I'm not going to share the gospel with someone because I might not do it just right what else how can perfectionism or this desire to control stunt our growth If you didn't hear Jason right, it's, it robs us of satisfaction. It's like, I won't be satisfied in what I do unless I'm the best at it or really good at it or uniquely special. And I think all of us, what we're saying here is this inability to embrace our finitude, which is just a fancy word for saying we're human, right? We're finite. We have limits. We have capacities that only go so far. Our inability to embrace that, our inability to embrace the reality of our fallenness, that though even though we have been redeemed, that we have been saved, that God calls us saints in Christ, we still have the remaining presence of sin. We still give in to temptation. We still suffer through trials. The inability for us to embrace both that finite reality of who we are and the fallen reality of who we are, it just robs us of our joy. And for many of us, it leads to us just quitting, turning inward to despair, leaning away from dependence on God's Spirit. And so many of us think the only way that we can really live is we have to triumph over those. And that's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand to believe that if I just, if I just work hard enough, I will get full control of my life. It's a fool's errand to believe if I just do better, try harder, follow all the rules, then somehow I'm not going to need to depend on the finished work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. It's actually only the acceptance of the fact that I'm a finite, needy person who is in desperate need of Jesus Christ and His gospel every day of my life that actually leads to us having joy. This is what Ecclesiastes is getting into here, chapters 9 through 11, is that we live in a world, we are out of control, we don't know everything, we're all going to die, yay. But there's good news. Because when we really accept those realities, now we're in, now we're in the game of the real world so that we can then meet the real Jesus who has come to not be our helper but really has come to be our Savior. 
but we must embrace our limitations if we're to truly live. We're going to talk about these three areas of limitation that are staring us in the eye in Ecclesiastes 9 through 11. The first one is control, our lack of control. The second one is our lack of knowledge. And the third one is the fact that we are all walking towards death and judgment. So the first thing, if we really want to truly live, to have joy in the moments of this life, then we must embrace our limitation to control. We must embrace our limitation to have control if we're to truly love. So chapter 9, that is, verses 1 through 18, kind of point this out. So we'll look at some of these verses. The first verse, I laid this to heart, examining it overall. He's saying here how the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's to love or hate, man doesn't know, both are before him. What, what God's word is saying here is, we're not really in control of what we do next. None of us in here can predict the future. None of us can say, here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. Here's the mood I'm going to be in. Here's the motivations that I'm going to have. We just can't predict that. Verses 2 and 3 are talking about we're not in control of who gets what in life. So these two verses, we read them already, are saying sometimes the same thing happens to the wicked as it happens to the righteous. If we don't realize that, we're into a lot of disillusionment. You'll get to a point in your life where you think, God, I did what I thought I was supposed to do, and this horrible thing happened to me, and I'm looking over here at these people who didn't give a rip about you, and it looks like they got everything I was working for. That's reality. You can't control that. Verses 4 through 6, we can't even control our lives by ending our lives. So, so if you read Ecclesiastes, it can give you at sometimes this sort of feeling like, well, maybe it would just be better for me to, to, to end my life. No doubt some of us have thought about that before. But really, that isn't even giving you control. That's just you giving in, quitting, and ultimately losing any hope that you had. Verses 11 and 12, if we jump down a little bit here, are talking about how we can't control the timing of our death regardless. He says, again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For a man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So they're saying from the human perspective, we're all really encouraging in it this morning. We're all fish in the water, and the net just comes, and it feels like arbitrarily one is taken and one is left. And what God's Word is saying here, we, we don't know. We can't control the day of our death. Verses 13 and 18 of this chapter point out the fact that wisdom is better than foolishness and power. But we really can't, even after we die, guarantee anybody will remember that. Because there was a wise, there was a found in it, a poor wise man, and by his wisdom he delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. So there's this argument, wisdom's better than foolishness, life is better than death, but we really can't control the outcomes of how that is received or remembered by other people. You're like, well, thanks a lot for me coming out this morning to receive that. 
So let's click back to verses 7 through 10 we read these. Because this is really good news. Well, verses 7 and 10 are saying, Go eat bread and drink. Be merry. For God has approved what you do. Let your garments be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. We've got to put this in the context of everything we just said. Because that's what it's saying. Enjoy the wife whom you love all the days of your life. Enjoy the work that you do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. What is God's word saying this morning? You can't control anything. But guess what you can do? You can love people. You can love people today. You may die tomorrow, but you can love people today. Everything may look arbitrary. You may work hard all your life and then the stock market crashes or whatever and you lose it all. But guess what can't be taken away? Your ability to love people in that. This is really good news for the real world. I read a book some years ago about a boy who grew up in a really tough neighborhood. It was a neighborhood where there was a lot of broken families. It was a neighborhood where there was a lot of physical blight. It was an area that was deep in an opioid epidemic. And this, this young man grew up in a very broken and dysfunctional home. And he talks about how hard it was for him as a kid to have no control over his life. And how that gets into your mind and gets into your heart, gets into your story, so that you start to feel like life is not worth living. It doesn't matter if I try. So here, here was one of the examples he gave. It's his mom had new boyfriends all of the time. But in this culture that he lived in, her getting a new boyfriend means they were going to move in with that boyfriend wherever they were. And we have lots of friends that have grown up in similar situations like this. And so he goes to school. He starts to work really hard at school. He gets to know his teacher. They build mutual trust. He starts to make good grades. And then guess what? He gets word when he gets home. We're moving. Goes to another school. Does it again. We're moving. Everywhere he, every, at every turn, he has to start over. And so finally in his mind, he's like, why should I even try? And we have to realize this is we want to seek to make the real Jesus known to the broken, burnout, and bored is that saying, hey, you live in America. If you just work hard, you have the opportunity. Well, that's true to a certain extent, but there's a lot of kids that have grown up in situations again and again in their life. They've tried to work hard, and then with no, nothing that they could control... All of a sudden, it changes. Now, this story ended well, and the reason that it ended well is because in the middle of all of the dysfunction, in the, in the middle of all of the disorder, in the middle of everything that was out of his control, he had one thing, and he had a grandma who was very imperfect herself, who was very sometimes out of control herself. But through all that, she loved him. She loved him. Imperfectly, yet with words and with deeds and with faithfulness, she was there. Speaking encouragement into his life, speaking truth into his life, 
and all of this, the disorder and all of the mess she could love. And so can we. We're not in control, but we can love. We can love God no matter what happens. We can love each other no matter what happens. We can love our family, our friends, and we can even love people who have yet to know Jesus. Especially people who have yet to come to know Jesus in situations that seem messy, that seem almost meaningless. We can love. Where we have got to repent is living our lives in such a way that we think we can take control. It's why so many of us are filled with such anxiousness, is we think that we can get this thing figured out, we can do it just right, and then out of the conveyor belt will pop all of our dreams come true. Now, life has its way of busting that balloon. But God's Word wants to come to us whenever we're getting swept into this fairy tale world that is setting us up for these entitlements and feelings that are only going to bring anger towards God and others, not love towards God and others, that we need to repent. We need to just say, as we said already, I'm not in control. I'm not in control. James 4 says it this way, Now listen you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will do this or do that. James is like New Testament wisdom literature. Calling us to submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God while we follow Him in His great command to love God and love one another. See, the good news is, is though we are out of control, God is in control. He's not asking you, though, for help with that. He is asking you to trust Him and to love one another. R.C. Sproul, a, a former theologian, says it this way. He says, there is not one rogue molecule in all of creation. And because there is not one rogue molecule or renegade molecule in all of creation, then that means even on our darkest days, when it seems like nothing is happening that makes any sense in our lives, we can put our eyes on Jesus and we can love one another. We can love one another. So our control is limited, but our call to love is unlimited. Also in chapter 10, we see not only this limitation of control, but we also embrace our limitation of knowledge so that we can really learn. So, so if we want to live life in reality, we embrace our limitation of control, but also our limitation of knowledge. So what chapter 10 is really saying as we, as we look there a little bit is that we really don't know everything. And we really can't know everything. We live in a very complicated world, right? One week, uh, this food is unhealthy. The next week, now that food's the most healthy thing you could eat. 
know? One year salt's bad, one year salt's good. One year cholesterol's bad, one year eggs are good, right? This is the world that we live in. New books, new information, it's confusing, it's complicated. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 10 kind of get to that. It says, There is an evil I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich set in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. What Solomon is saying here is, sometimes things just look upside down. And yet, we're not going to read all these verses, but if you were to look at chapter 10, if you have a Bible, what's surrounding the confusion is a lot of Proverbs of wisdom. That even though we live in a world that can be very confusing and we have to realize that we can't figure it all out, is that there is wisdom for us to live by. There is truth that we can know and we can apply in humble yet specific and confident ways. So this is a big takeaway that we say often here, and we really need to know this in our current cultural climate where many people would tell us that there is no such thing as truth. Quit trying to have any kind of belief that you know something is right. Here it is. It's what Proverbs, is, what Ecclesiastes is saying, what God's Word is saying. It's just because we can't know something exhaustively doesn't mean we can't know some things truly. This is very, very important. I'm going to break that down if that, if that didn't make sense. Just because you can't know everything doesn't mean you can't know something. Just because you can't know everything doesn't mean you can't know something. So think with me here. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to our Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. What is the assumption there? Legitimate question. Secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us, and we're to obey them. Assumption is God knows everything. What's another assumption for us? That we can know some things. And we're responsible to obey them. There is not the assumption that we just say, well, God's a mystery. And so let's all just say that we love Jesus and leave it at that. You know, let's just come up with some sort of minimalistic thing that like, you know, nobody really knows anything. So let's just say we love Jesus. If we not agree on that, that's probably better. And then we'll debate who Jesus is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. So again, the assumption. Yeah, we don't know everything, but we know in part. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 18. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker whom has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The assumption is, you can handle the word rightly. You can handle it rightly. But avoid irreverent Bible, which will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So you can know it rightly, and you can become an irreverent babbler who's talking about stuff you don't know anything about. Titus 2.15 Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What's the assumption there? 
Not only can you know the truth, you can declare it with authority. Now, all of these, all of this, what we're saying right here, if you're thinking, well, no duh, this is not no duh out in the world. You're going to meet many people who are going to challenge you both within the church and outside of the church on the fact that you could know anything that you could declare with any type of authority. That you could say, this is true. This isn't Laurel or Yanny. Right? Like, you're hearing this frequency, I'm hearing this frequency, and they're both true. Now, let's, we don't have a, a Laurel or Yanny view of God's truth. We have a responsibility through the Spirit to be tuned in to who God is. This is important. See, sometimes things don't make sense. Y'all know I talk about Cassie when she's in here, so this is cool. My wife's in the other room for the visitors. So I bought her a flower once early on in our marriage, and I was really thinking I was being romantic. And you know what she did? She just kind of like, like, well chalk that up here. She doesn't really like flowers. And then later I overheard her talking to somebody else being like, yeah, Rusty just doesn't ever buy me any flowers. That's confusing. I thought she didn't like flowers. So for our anniversary last year, I took her out to a nice dinner at a nice restaurant. And you know, she's kind of disappointed. She's like, we kind of, we do this for every birthday and anniversary and so for her birthday after that I took her for an eight mile hike that almost killed her (laughs) now I didn't bring water and some other small details that could have been helpful but uh, the temptation is to say you're confusing I don't think I can ever figure you out and so guess what I'm just going to quit trying That's not love. Love is, I'm learning, right? You do like flowers, and you want an adventure, but one that is reasonable and not death-causing. Because I love you, I'm not going to say, because I will never probably ever have you figured out totally, and I probably won't, that I'm going to quit trying. I'm not going to say because I I can't know you fully, Cassie, then I won't know you as much as I can and put as much effort and diligent and pursuit to know you for who you are. And I want to do that not just because I love you, but because you love me. I want to know you. And all of us in this room, regardless of whether you're in any type of relationship or not with any human person, you need to know that God loves you. He has not hidden himself. He's not playing hide and seek with you. He's not said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to reveal enough of myself to humanity to confuse the heck out of everybody. And then just sit back and watch them argue about me. He wants us to know him. He says that we are to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Strength. He tells his people in Hosea that Hosea 4.4, my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. 
We cannot know everything. We will never figure everything out. We will never figure God out. He is too big for us to have in our little containers. But we can know Him truly through what He has revealed for us to know. And it is our responsibility to pursue Him, not to win debates, but to know His heart. Some of us just give up. Some of us in here may need to repent because we're on one, in one ditch or the other. We're in the ditch that's saying, I'm going to have God totally figured out and just set the world to rights. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to be the best meme generator of truth that this world has ever seen and everyone else will be put in their place. And then there's others of us who slide into this other ditch and it's like, well, you know, people have been debating that for a long time and there's all these different denominations and all these different things. And so, you know, I'm just not even going to care anymore, right? Theology, doctrine, that's not important. You know, who knows in the end? Let's just, you know, get in a circle and hold hands, right? Two ditches. And the center, though, is the one whom we call the way, the truth, and the life who wants us to know Him, who does not want us to be like is said of the false teachers in 2 Timothy 3.7, they were always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. That, that's not a virtue, always learning, never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. That's a characteristic of a false teacher. Some of you may be saying, well, I'm no theologian, I'm, no, I'm just not a smart person. I've heard men say that who know a word right here that blows my mind. Carburetor. Carburetor. They can put a car together back and forwards and use all these words that I have no idea what they're talking about. And then they look at me and say, justification, quit using big words. What? <laughs> you know more big words than I do. Ladies, not to pick on you, right? We want women in our church who, who don't let any stereotype fit them. We want you to know God's Word. We want you to, to love Him. And we want you to lead out in making disciples in this church. And you can use words, I, I hope this isn't bad to say, men use these too. Jason, you're a great baker. Jonathan, great cookie. Confectionary sugar, Right? If I get sent to Walmart to find confectionery sugar, I'm going to be there like two hours. Because I can't find it, I can't hardly pronounce it. If you can bake a cake, then you can learn about sanctification and not roll your eyes and say, you're blowing my mind here. And we do this not about the words, we do this because we, we want to know our God who loves us so much. Our knowledge is not motivated so that we might win debates. Our knowledge, again, is motivated so that we might love God. Because this is our last thing. I'll just hit this quickly. We embrace our limitations of control so that we can truly love. We embrace our limitations of knowledge so that now we can truly learn. And we embrace the reality of death and judgment so that we can really live. Now, this seems backwards. This is chapter 11, and this is really all of the book of Ecclesiastes. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 11 tell us we need to prepare ourselves for an unpredictable life. And verses 9 and 10 tell us, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, 
Let your heart cheer you on in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Two things here. Prepare yourself for judgment. Don't be shocked. And don't be shocked that life is hard and heavy and short. My dad was a lifelong smoker. Some of you know this story. I've shared it before. It just fits here so well. He's a lifelong smoker. And then one day, he had a heart attack. Complete with the helicopter landing, him getting on it, and us standing there looking and thinking, are we ever going to see him again? Are we ever going to talk to him again? I can only imagine what was going on in his mind as he made that trip in that helicopter from Chatsworth to Erlanger. Well, after that, and not everybody does that, guess what? He miraculously stopped smoking. Because at least for him, things got real. I mean, you can't smoke a pack, right? If you're a smoker... I got my stuff too, so I'm not singling that out. I'm just saying for my dad, it's like, he's, he's, he stopped. And my dad had always been a loving and caring person, but it's almost like the reality of death just like turned the volume up on that big time. Wanting to give, wanting to love, wanting to spend, wanting to help. Because he just knew how fleeting life could be. You see, when we get in touch with the reality of death and judgment, that doesn't make us morbid people. Actually, it's people who probably live the most fullest, joy-filled lives in the moment, who can eat, drink, and be merry, who can, who can just be present, are the people who have a good, realistic grasp on death and judgment, and yet they found security in Christ. We can't change the fact that death and judgment is coming. But what we can do is we can be ready and we can live lives with a healthy view of the reality of it. You know, the Bible says this, Hebrews 9.27, is it appointed for a man once to die and after that, judgment. Not a lot of things in life are certain, but every one of us in here will die and as 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we'll stand before the judgment seat of For those of us in Jesus or those of us yet to be in Christ here this morning, that doesn't have to be bad news. It doesn't have to be because Jesus came to earth for the very purpose of defeating sin, death, and hell. I mean, this is the gospel. It's that Jesus, even in some ways, limited his control so that he could truly love us. I mean, you think about Jesus' life. It's like he's walking through a world full of landmines that are just going off everywhere. Nobody's receiving him. Nobody's loving him. Nobody's playing according to the plan that God had laid out. And he just keeps loving people. He keeps healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching the gospel, even when everybody walks away from him. 
He was in control, but in a sense, this, this was not the way it should have been. He should have been praised and welcomed and exalted. He's the Son of God. And yet he's rejected, despised. We see Jesus living a hard life, and yet the fullest life that has ever existed in this planet. When we see him going to Calvary, we see him going to a cross that he didn't deserve to go to, paying a debt that he didn't owe, dying a death that he did not have to die so that he could rise and give us a life now that we can truly live. Jesus is victorious. He is risen. He is reigning. And He does not want us walking around through life with our heads down, full of unhealthy discouragement. He wants us to mourn these realities as we did so well earlier, and that's why we do them. But He wants us to do so with hope. But the only way you can have that hope is if you've already prepared yourself for death and judgment. The only way to do that is through Jesus. He alone is the way to the Father. His name alone is the one by which men can be saved. So you have to know, have you trusted Him? Have you given Him your life? Not just your afterlife. Lots of people around here have given Jesus their afterlife. But what the wisdom literature is saying to us is He cares about your life here too. He wants to be Lord not only of your eternity in the future, He wants to be Lord of your eternity starting today. But you just have to admit that neither through your rebellion nor through your religion can you take control of that. You have to submit yourself wholly to Him to put your trust in His perfect life for you, His perfect death for you, and His powerful resurrection for you. And that is the only way you will then receive his spirit that came on that first Pentecost to enable you to live a life of love, of learning, even when everything doesn't go your way. Father, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus in the face of our present world.